And that's what started my journey in thinking about how can we put in place guardrails that is going to guide something which is going to be so transformational to our world, so transformational to our democracy, so transformational to our society. And for me, I would say that the past 10 years were sort of a reincarnation from a technologist to a person who is really focused on making sure that at the end of the day, that AI serves humanity. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app, and we'll keep sharing amazing conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. As you know, I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies and a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show, and the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, Michael Dempsey from BBC asks this week in an insightful article, is it possible to regulate artificial intelligence? In it, he argues an organization like the United Nations can't be expected to regulate an app like, say, Photoshop. Another problem is getting non-cooperative nations like North Korea and Iran to abide by rules that prevent AI from going rogue. There are many AI for good organizations emerging to educate legislators about the world. But Dempsey fears if it becomes too easy for bad actors to do major damage with AI, no rules will prevent them. There's certainly precedent set for regulating dangerous technologies like airplanes or atomic energy. Many challenges face AI regulation, but let's not discount the work of well-intentioned technologists and governments who are collaborating to define and enforce the right guardrails. As always, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes, which is certainly relevant to today's conversation. Now shifting to this week. Today's guest is a pioneer in the field of responsible AI. We've discussed the topic in the past with leaders like Krishna Gaday, CEO of Fiddler, and Professor Meredith Broussard, author of More Than a Glitch, about algorithmic accountability from NYU. There aren't enough vocal advocates on the topic, and there's not even broad agreement on what responsible AI is. Navrina Singh started Credo AI in March 2020 to change that. Credo AI is on a mission to help organizations create AI that adheres to the highest ethical standards. Navrina and the team have since raised nearly $13 million from an impressive list of investors that include Sands Capital, Decibel Ventures, AI Fund, and Village Global. Navrina is a member of the National AI Advisory Committee and is a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. Be prepared to be inspired. Take something away from today's conversation that you can use to make the world a little better with AI. And without further ado, Navrina, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you share a bit about your background and how you got into this space. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dan. One, great to be in this place today where AI has truly become the technology that is transforming everything that we are doing, you know, whether it's at work, whether it's at play, whether it's at home. 
And I would say that Credo AI is in a very important place and important moment in time to really, you know, guide this transformational technology. And I started this company about three and a half years ago after spending 20 years as a technologist building many of these technologies, whether it was in facial recognition, speech recognition, or conversational AI systems. And I would say one of the core things that as a technologist you get excited by is how far can your innovation go? And I would say the first 20 years was really focused on building great stuff rather than thinking about my responsibility, my accountability in this world. And I would say about a decade back, the notion of ethics and AI safety became paramount to me as a technologist. And that's what started my journey in thinking about how can we put in place guardrails that is going to guide something which is going to be so transformational to our world, so transformational to our democracy, so transformational to our society. And for me, I would say that the past 10 years were sort of a reincarnation from a technologist to a person who is really focused on making sure that at the end of the day, that AI serves humanity. So very excited about the journey we are here at Credo to ensure AI not only serves humanity, but also make sure that continues to enable innovation in artificial intelligence. I love your passion. We need more of it. And I know from following you on social that uh, you're never shy with opinions. So let's jump right in. If Navrina ran the world, how would you regulate AI? You know, what a great question. I I wish I did run the world. <laughs> but since we don't run the world right now, I think what I'm really excited about is that Credo AI is really at all the important tables where a conversation around what do the guardrails for AI look like need to be. And I think one of the things that we've done at Credo AI is really making sure that not only are we at those tables uh, talking about how we should regulate artificial intelligence, but also attracting multi-stakeholders to those tables. So if we were to regulate AI, I think we would just start with the outcome. Why do we want to regulate AI? The reason for that is to build trust. You know, when you have such an important, powerful technology that is showing up in hiring decisions, in healthcare decisions, in, you know, facial recognition systems, in, you know, social media, which my nine-year-old uses day in, day out, you need to start really thinking about how do you build trust with the consumers and whose jobs are at stake, whose healthcare is at stake, whose education is at stake because of this powerful technology. So I think really starting the regulation discussion with how do you engender trust is really critical. And I think in terms of core tenets of regulations that we have been very actively vocal about is first and foremost, transparency. You know, the transparency can, you know, show up in different ways throughout the AI value chain. When you think about the vendors, the builders of this technology, are they disclosing, you know, not only the sources of data sets, but did they get consent to those data sets, how those data sets were tested, how the systems that they're building and putting out in the world tested, did they have multi-stakeholder perspective and red teaming associated with those outcomes? So I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of transparency at vendor level. And then as you walk downstream, the application developers, you know, especially in the context of foundation models and frontier technologies that we are living through, 
it's really critical to start thinking about how these applications are going to come into being and what kind of transparency and disclosures can we sort of, um, you know, put on top of them. Because so much of building that trust depends upon context, context of use, context of deployment, and context of where those applications really came from. So I think the first and foremost for us is really focusing on transparency and disclosure reporting across the entire value chain. And I think that's a great first step in terms of educating the regulators in terms of what could that initial policy making look like. And then very quickly, Dan, the second area, which I believe is really critical in terms of how we can put regulations in place is thinking about impacted communities. Is there a mechanism by which we can get feedback into our technology and development process from the consumers who are impacted. Just this morning, I was having conversations with, you know, group who are really focusing on disab disability and accessibility. And as you can imagine, you know, in scenarios like proctoring, where you're using facial recognition and automated tools to make a decision, is that, you know, student cheating or not, there's a massive unintended consequences for disabled individuals you know, to really show up in the right way in those scenarios. So I think how can we make sure that not only are we taking those impacted communities front and center as we are building these technologies, but also making sure that when these, you know, systems do have unintended consequences, that we are able to very quickly course correct for the individuals who are impacted. Beautifully said, Prime Minister Navrina. I like <laughs> that commentary. Now, it, it, it's easy to quickly agree on the what and the why of regulation, but the who often gets a little tricky. Should we rely on local and federal governments? Is there a new international body that needs to be developed? Or maybe we should rely on the, the open markets to regulate the technology. What, what, what's your perspective on the who? You know, Dan, this has been a question I've been asking myself for the past 10 years, even before AI became the, the big, you know, pervasive technology it is today. And I would say that I think about it in like three core areas. The first is, I think, self-regulation, which I still believe has a role to play where every especially big technology company, every AI for startup has an accountability and responsibility to come up with their set of values and defining what good looks like to them and making sure that across those set of values they're developing using, procuring artificial intelligence technologies. I think showing that alignment with their values and the way that they are using, building AI, AI technologies is really critical. And I think self-regulation certainly has a role to play. But then I also think about, you know, how can we have specific guardrails, especially at national and global level? And as you can imagine on national level, it really depends upon you know, the government, what are they prioritizing? We've seen that. And, and this is where I'm very excited about President Biden and how he's thinking about regulations where, you know, the U.S. citizens' rights come first, like ensuring that not only a risk management framework around artificial intelligence is set up, but it is really focused on the rights of the U.S. citizens is super critical. And then as you th start looking at EU, where I think I've been really excited, not only are they at the frontier of coming up with the right guardrails, they have adopted, again, a rights and a risk-based methodology 
to put guardrails in place. Now, very different than if you look at Singapore and if you look at Australia and how you look at India. But I think what we are seeing beyond self-regulation is nations really adopting what is important to them and their democratic values and coming up with their set of guardrails, but then globally allies coming together and harmonizing standards and harmonizing on areas that each other can really align on to make sure that this powerful technology is guided. You talked about providing visibility to impacted communities, and I love that concept, and that's just table stakes. We need more of that. But because you're an expert, I want to spend a little more time on that topic. If vendors are held responsible to make it transparent when automated decisions were made on behalf of citizens, what do you do in the case where certain vendors don't understand how those automated decisions were made? And what, what's the level of responsibility for some introducing some amount of explainability, auditability, accountability at the level of the algorithms and the data? Again, I don't want to editorialize too much. I'd like to get your, your feedback. But my concern is that any system where the vendors are asked to grade their own homework probably won't end well. I, I agree with you, Dan. And I think this is where you, you need to think about two ways. And this is something that I'm very uh, vocal advocate of. One is you do need to do self-governance and, you know, you can use tools like Credo AI to really look across your entire data and AI lifecycle to do that self-governance, which is really one understanding where you're actually using AI versus not using AI. Secondly, once you've figured out where you're using AI to very quickly get an evaluation of the risks that it's exposing your organization to. And then three, really making a commitment around what values are you going to adopt and make sure that the system before you push it out in the market actually meets, right? So really defining those benchmarks internally for yourself is really critical. And I think that is stable stakes. Any AI first company, any AI company that is building, buying, procuring AI should be doing that absolutely critically. The second thing which I couldn't underscore enough, and I think you just said it, is the need for third-party assessments and the need for third-party audits. And there's a reason I'm using assessments versus audits differently, because assessments generally you can bring in an outsider, as long as that outsider is outside the development team, could still be within your company, to come and do the assessment of how you've tested these systems before you put it out in the market. But audits really need to be against standards. And this is where, you know, um, we are going to see emergence of third-party audit ecosystem because of the great work that, you know, standard bodies like NIST, uh, ISO, IEEE, Sensalalac are all doing. We are going to start seeing more and more standards emerge. And we are also going to see more audit auditing standards emerge, which is going to create an ecosystem like we've had in SOC 2. You know, in SOC 2, you as a company actually put in place all the mechanisms and then you bring in an outside auditor who does a completely independent audit. We are just a few years away from that, but that's happening as we speak. And I think both are really critical. Self-governance and then independent assessments and independent audits. You and I both talk to enterprise leaders every day who believe in the value system 
that we're talking about here, but oftentimes they don't know where to get started because that SOC 2 for AI doesn't exist. And so mm-hmm. they say, we want to exercise AI responsibly. We we hear about it in, in the news all the time, but where do we start? Yeah, you know, I think uh, this is where, you know, I'm just going to go on a little bit digression here. You know, credo AI has a very significant meaning. Credo means a set of values that guides your action. And when we started credo AI, credo AI was how can we guide AI against a set of values you as, as an organization adopt? And so I, you know, to answer your question, where do they get started? First and foremost, I think they have to align internally on what do they value. And my feedback to all the enterprises right now is if you want to even show up in this age of AI, you have to lead with trust and you have to make sure that you are responsible by design. We should not be using the word responsible AI anymore, right? And for to do that, you have to really get clear on what are your values as an organization. So that's a good starting point, aligning on internal values. I would say the second starting point is really there's already a lot of existing regulations that still apply to data, that apply to privacy, that apply to machine learning. So it's regulation is not a new concept in machine learning and AI. There's already existing laws that you as an organization need to adopt and then understand. And so this is where, you know, Credo AI software comes in, where we shine light on based on the metadata we collect around your AI application, like what laws and regulations already apply. So you can adopt that. The third is industry best practices. Now, if you look at your peers and, you know, in financial services, as an example, there are 20, 25 definitions of what fairness for risk scoring and fraud models really mean. But guess what? The peer group of the top financial services, you know, players are now adopting a set of those definitions. So I think looking across and seeing what works for you and your values is another way to really get started. And then lastly, I think standards, you know, uh, we've worked with NIST on their AI risk management framework for the past 22 months. And even though it is complex for enterprises to adopt because it's not contextual, which is coming, by the way, um, it's a great starting point to really have a framework to rally the troops, especially multi-stakeholder troops, to really understand what those values for mapping, measuring, governing your AI risk, but also how you can convert that into an opportunity to adopt AI technologies with confidence. So I would say those, you know, are some of the things that enterprises should be thinking about in coming up with their own constitution and their own set of values to guide AI. The high profile examples that we've heard so far about what happens when AI goes rogue or makes bad decisions are things like biases introduced into the decision making process or copyrighted works are misused or employee confidential IP gets leaked out and used as training data for a foundation model. But we're just in the early stages here. I'd I'd love to know from Prime Minister Navrina, are those the right things to be focused on? Or given how early we're at, is there another wave of risks that we haven't even encountered yet? Or are those the right ones to be focused on at, at, at this time? So Dan, maybe I'll change the framing of the question, like, are those the right risks? Absolutely. I mean, that's impacting you and me day in, day out, right? 
But I think we need to maybe sort of shift the focus back on there's so much around this frontier technology we don't know yet. So we are going to see emergent risks. But I think the way I want to frame this is I think we've gone past the era of traditional software where technical risks were paramount. I think we've entered this space of socio-technical risk where the impact is not just on the bias, but the labor markets. The impact is not just on adversarial attacks, but how are potentially bad actors going to threaten national security? So the scale, the magnitude of the risk, one has really expanded. And secondly, the socio-technical nature of the risk that AI is bringing is drastically different. So with that said, as you can imagine, you know, uh, even on the spectrum of artificial intelligence, many of the organizations still use, you know, traditional machine learning, which is essentially a set of algorithms reasoning over data. And as you can imagine, to your point, bias is a massive issue. And especially when it results in unfair outcomes for certain demographics, we should absolutely be solving for that as we speak. Because that is important for, you know, all the decisions we are making and who gets that job and who gets that claim process, et cetera. But as you can start thinking about, you know, the frontier models and foundation models, I think something that I think about deeply, Dan, is, you know, what makes us human? Creativity makes us human. So, you know, at one point, if these algorithms are just going to take all my creative output and call it their own or create something of their own, what does human mean in this new age of AI is something I deeply think about. So, you know, I would say that the next wave of, I wouldn't call them risks, but big questions we have is, you know, cultural evolution of humans. I would think about language evolution of humans. I would think about, you know, democratic values. We've been talking a lot about misinformation and deep fakes and how do we make sure that AI generated content, one is not only factual, but is labeled as AI generated so that humans at the end know where it is coming from. I mean, there is a massive set of challenges that we already know from misinformation to cultural, to copyright issue, to IP leakage. And then there is a set of issues we don't know, the emerging risks, you know, and, and, and these emergent risks are something that we in the research community are spending time trying to not only explore, but understand. And then those could take us in directions that as a humanity, we should really be worried about. Very well said. I like how you framed it in terms of scope and scale beyond what we know today. So you're talking to a lot of next generation leaders who are trying to reconcile the very complicated relationship that they will have with machines as they graduate into the world of work. Um, what's your advice to them about uh, you know, the, the, their concerns that when all of a sudden you know, their colleague is a bot, and like you said, the essence of humanity is our ability to be creative, but they might feel threatened by the fact that some of these technologies appear to be creative and might limit their ability to be what they thought was the essence of a human at work. How, do you, how would you help them kind of reconcile what it means to be a human when, you know, we, we, we increasingly will coexist with machines? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great um, question, Dan. And I think um, there have been recent terminologies used like co-pilot and, you know, a helper. 
I actually believe that in this age of AI, um, there's going to be both the amplification of human creativity because of AI, and there's also going to be distrust because of everything is going to take away from us. And I think to be able to manage that balance between amplification and reduction, the only way humans will be able to solve for it is if they get educated on AI. And I see this day in, day out. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I have a nine-year-old and the nine-year-old is already adept using, you know, you know, new systems like chat GPT and DALE on day in, day out basis. And has it reduced her creativity? Absolutely not. I think I've seen her actually be more creative because now she has this assistant that is, you know, sort of challenging her in her own unique ways. However, there's a mom sitting next to her. And as I, as a mom, I'm educating her about not to believe everything that she's seeing that ChatGPT is putting out and that she should do her own factual checks by going and researching that topic. So I think this is where AI education is not only going to be critical for the technologists, but I think it's going to be critical for human, especially because this technology is so pervasive. It's been made so simple for anybody to use it. And I think the question that we need to be asking is in this amplification and reduction, can we get educated enough to for AI to actually amplify our creativity more so than bring the unintentional consequences? I have a lot of conversations with educators who claim that use of LLMs in the classroom is considered cheating. As a parent of a nine-year-old, at what point would you think that some work output that's contributed to by a co-pilot is, you know, somehow diminishing her, her learning journey? You know, I believe that human oversight and human in the loop is going to be so critical in this new age of AI. And the concerns for me in especially use of, you know, some of these powerful tools in classrooms is going to be when the student chooses to themselves, they have the agency, we have to remember that, that they choose to not review the output. They choose to not do the factuality check. They choose to not augment it with their human creativity and just depend on what the tool is outputting. And I think this is where the discussion around amplification is really critical. If we, and we are going to see cases after cases of this, where, you know, I as a student, I'm like, let ChatGPT just do my homework. You're going to see that very clearly in how that student ends up doing in class, right? So I think for me, again, human in the loop is going to become the core of where systems are used well and where humanity thrives. And we'll also see when humans are removed from the loop, how very quickly there is degradation of quality. And, and I think that's something that I'm heavily betting on. Here you and I sit in the cradle of Silicon Valley, and there's this somewhat contrived but high-profile argument going on about should we pause all AI development? because it's more dangerous than nukes. And then on the other side, you know, you have a, another cohort of leaders saying, you know, it's more important or more impactful than fire or electricity. And so, of course, we shouldn't pause innovation. Where does Navrina sit on that spectrum? I think it's too late to have this conversation, Dan. The genie is already out of the bottle. You can't pause something that's already out and, you know, spread across in our environment. Very difficult to do that. So I think this is where shifting the conversation from pausing to now that it's out there in the open, how do we guide it? 
And I think I would request everybody to be focused on thinking about guardrails for this technology so that we can get that amplification, that benefits that this technology promises, rather than spending our energy, especially brain power of some of the most brilliant people here in trying to stop the, the technology, which, by the way, I think it's already too late. We haven't talked much about the challenge that you face as a, as a CEO and as a founder of a company productizing value-based AI, responsible AI. Um, what are some of the features that you've introduced to actually turn a lot of these important beliefs and value systems into a product? So Dan, you know, since the beginning of Credo AI, one of the core focus for us was not just the product, but it was also the ecosystem because we wanted to make sure our product reflects one, what was really happening across these multi-stakeholder tables in policy. Two, our product was reflecting the pain points that the impacted communities see. And three, our product was providing solutions so that we can actually guide this technology. And I think what we have done uh, in the past three and a half years is actually really punching above the weight because first, we've been able to operationalize the values. And these values, as I mentioned, can come from regulations. These can come from standards. These can come from aligning multi-stakeholders within an enterprise. And so really helping alignment across an enterprise who's responsible for building and using this technology is something that we have done really well and operationalized today. The second thing that we've done well is, as you can imagine, you can come up with any benchmarks, but accountability is showing how you do against those benchmarks. And this is where Credo AI has done a fantastic job in operationalizing one, what these values are and what the associated benchmarks are, but secondly, testing against those benchmarks and showing how you're actually faring. So a very clean analysis of, you know, what you say you're going to do and are you actually doing it? And then the third thing that we've done really well, and this is very, I would say, a, a topic of deep passion for me, because I would say as a technologist, um, sometimes we just believe our ideas are the best and we stop listening to other sides. And for us at Credo, it was very important not only to listen to the other side, but create a bridge in this oversight deficit that had started to exist. And so the third thing that we've done really well is the outputs that our system produces are understandable by these multi-stakeholders. They can't be super technical for a policymaker and regulator to not understand and fathom. And they can't be too business-like for a data scientist to not be able to do anything about it. So a big part of Credo AI's work has been in this translation to make sure that slowly by creating a common language in responsibility and accountability, we are able to bring these very unique stakeholders together to solve one of the biggest problems that humanity faces right now, which is how to guide AI. And I think we've done all these things really extremely well in our product. I know what a core competence this is, but I think to a lot of our audience who's listening, they would hear us talk about self-regulation by, call it big tech, the owners of the foundation models and say, isn't it their responsibility to manage the integrity of their own models? How do you think about you know, the need for a dedicated kind of system of record for policy management for AI that won't be owned by the owners of the foundation models? 
I think artificial intelligence not only requires, but deserves shared accountability. And what I mean by that is we need to figure out a mechanism by which we can align incentives across all this, this very complicated value chain. So expecting just the model developers to have a system of record and disclosure reporting and hoping that they're going to be reporting on that truthfully, I think is a bit much to ask. And so this is where I believe that with shared accountability, it's really critical to make sure that we all are asking questions of the developers, application builders, and users in terms of, is this artificial intelligence transparent enough, explainable enough, tested enough, to make sure it's meeting the end objectives, which is all about maintaining the integrity of trust ecosystem that we've created. So the Dan, I just want to underscore this world runs on trust. The minute you break it, you're out of the running in, in this world. And so I think the shared accountability is a great mechanism for us to make sure that we continue to make sure this world of AI runs on trust. I'm not letting you off the hot seat without answering one important last question for me. So roll back the clock 10 or even 20 years. What's your advice to that younger version of Navrina that maybe had all of the passion that you do today, but uh, didn't know nearly as much as, as you know, based on what you've learned from your, your journey so far? I would say believing in your gut and trusting yourself. You know, we, building a startup is a very hard, emotionally charged journey. And it's really not just about building a business. I think it's really about maintaining the integrity of that dream, especially when the entire world is constantly asking you to compromise. And guess what? In those moments where the world is asking you to compromise on your dream, the only one who shows up for you is you and your, your gut. So I would say that for me, it's really trusting the gut and conviction that you have in spite of the failures you're faced with. I hope you're unique among entrepreneurs and this doesn't happen to you, but have you ever had one of those imposter moments where you're not really sure? You question your conviction or you question your ability to execute? Every day. <laughs> so Dan, as a founder, every day you're eating glass, every day you're challenging your assumptions, every day you're bringing and surrounding yourself with individuals who are smarter than you. And that's the way you should be building a company. But when you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, you very quickly realize that you, you know, you don't know everything and that's okay. But I would say that every day I believe in and, and struggle with, you know, this imposter syndrome, but I think it's in those moments because I am uninformed about the other space that I ask better questions. I'm able to solve harder problems because I don't assume to know everything. And I would say that the imposter syndrome actually works to your benefit because it gives you much more clarity to really be more curious and to be able to solve those hard problems. So hard to explain to someone who hasn't been in the chair, who hasn't founded a company. And I want you to know, we're going to be good friends, even though we just met. I so resonate with a lot of what you're doing. And I said in the opener, even before the conversation, we need more of Navrina Singh out there. It's a very important topic. And you are an expert. You do this better than anyone. So not that this one person's opinion necessarily matters, but but you're doing the right thing. Certainly, you know, a lot, lot more people are listening to you than you might believe. Well, thank you so much for saying that, Dan. And actually, your opinion matters because every one person who believes in the dream that we are trying to make 
a reality is actually going to make sure that AI actually ends up serving humanity. So thank you so much. Anything you'd like the audience to know about the work that you're doing or where they can follow up and learn more about Credo AI? I would say the key thing is one, it's shared accountability to make sure AI is guided. And if you need tools along the way, Credo AI is, I would say, industry's first AI governance platform that has provided continuous oversight and accountability of these systems. So reach out to us and we'll be happy to help you on your responsible AI governance journey. Well, we're all rooting for you and the company to succeed. Great work. Gosh, this has been a very important conversation. Thanks for hanging out, Navrina. Thank you so much for having me. Good. Well, that's all the time we have for this week on AI and the Future of Work. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin from PeopleRain. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest.